Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, being called Reverend uh, Penny Leach. I don't think I've ever been called that before. <laughs> uh, everybody calls me Penny, uh, not John, but Penny. And uh, it is great to be with you. Um, I'm not a graduate of Covenant College, but uh, I am thankful for the work that God has done here. Many alumni go to my church uh, in Roanoke as well as in St. Louis. I know some of y'all because um, you are part of my church in St. Louis, or uh, I know you because I know someone who knows you, or something of that nature, and, and I've benefited greatly from some of your professor's works, and so I'm very thankful for uh, the blessing that Covenant College is to our denomination, but also to my church, to the many people in my church, and uh, look forward to having some of you one day uh, in our midst as well. So uh, thank you for having me, and thank you uh, thank you for what the Lord is doing. I thank the Lord for y'all. Well, this morning we are going to look at Psalm 84. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it and follow along there. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 84. The, the Psalms are by far and away my favorite book in all of Scripture. It's what I did my THM in was the Psalms. And, and every single summer at my church in Roanoke, we return to the Psalms. I have a 20 to 25 year preaching plan to go through the entirety of the Psalter, and maybe when we're done, we'll start over again. But, but I love returning to the Psalms again and again and again. And the reason why I love the Psalms is because whatever emotion you have felt, whatever human experience you have encountered, you can find it in the Psalms. Right? Sadness and celebration, anger and awe, doubting and delight. They're all there. Whatever it is that you are bringing in this morning, you can find it in the Psalms. But what is beautiful about the Psalms is that they are not simply the emotional life of the people of God. They are not just there to commend whatever experience we are having, but they reshape our emotions. They reshape our experience with hope, with what is true. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is a pilgrimage psalm. The people of God are going up to Jerusalem, up to the temple of worship. And so as they go up to worship, I'm sure you have ideas of what they're expecting to find there. I mean, many of you came this morning with expectations of what you'll find in chapel or on Sunday mornings, what you expect when you go to your local congregations. What do you expect to find in worship? Let's go ahead and read Psalm 84. Follow along. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, it's pretty common in my office, in my study, that as I'm preparing a sermon, as I'm getting ready for a Sunday school lesson, or doing the various works that I do as a pastor to have music on in the background, and one of the bands that I like to listen to is the Decemberists. Are there any Decemberist fans? All right. Okay, if you didn't put your hand up, that's your homework, right? You need to go find out why people are yelping at the Decemberists because they are a wonderful band. And in their most recent album, they have a song that when I first listened to it, made me think of the Psalms. The song is called Everything is Awful. It's basically the antithesis to the Lego song. Everything is awesome, there's everything is awful. And the refrain goes like this. It says, everything, everything. Everything, everything, everything is awful. So just in case you weren't sure what the singer-songwriter thought about the world, he lets you know everything is awful. And it goes on, he says, what's that crashing sound follows us around? That's the sound of all good breaking. Put your fears to rest, you know it's for the best. As a choir of angels sings, everything is awful. Now, that's an awfully bleak view of the world, isn't it? Everything is awful. Everything good is breaking. That is awfully bleak. And and hopefully, most, if not all of us, would be very hesitant to say that everything is awful. But but even if we are hesitant to agree with the Decemberists in saying that everything is awful, we know that there are things that are awful. And when we experience the awful of this world, it can be very easy for us to think that everything is breaking, that all the good is coming undone, that everything is awful. We know what he's experiencing. We know the awfulness of this world, and so does the psalmist. Israel knew it. Now, in this psalm, if you were listening carefully, you would have heard a lot of joy, a lot of celebration, a lot of expectation. But in the midst of it, we read in verse 6 that the people on pilgrimage are going through the valley of Baca. Now, the valley of Baca, we're not actually sure where this valley is. But there's two interesting things about that word Baca. You see, in other places in the Old Testament, that word Baca is used to refer to a balsam tree. Now, a balsam tree was a particular tree that grew in dry and arid regions, in desolate places. It was places that were inhabitable. Is that the word? People didn't live there, okay? It was places that you wandered through to get to somewhere better. But that Hebrew word also sounds like to weep. So if you were to look at the Hebrew word and you were just scanning over it quickly, you would notice that that it looks like the verb to weep. It actually sounds like that verb. And so most scholars think that the psalmist is using this word to describe their experience. That as they're going up to the place of worship, their eyes are filled with tears. So much so that their tears make this valley a place of springs. They're experiencing the awful. And so what does the psalmist do with this? With his tears, with the barrenness, what what do we do? What do you do with that sin that you can't seem to shake? 
with the pain that you experience in a relationship that's gone bad, when, when immoral people are seemingly not affected by their immorality and are succeeding despite their immorality? What do you do with death itself? Well, in those moments, it would be very easy to heed the advice of the song. Lay down your heavy head. It's safer here in bed. And let those voices ring. Everything is awful. Lay down. Embrace the awful in all its hopeless pessimism. But even if we were to do that, even if we were to do that, we would still be left yearning for something better, wouldn't we? A desire for the awfulness to be no more. For something more, the psalmist yearns, he longs, verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Those words, they sound like they're being penned by a hopeless romantic speaking to his future bride, don't they? My soul longs for you. It aches to be in your presence. But these aren't the words of a starstruck lover, but they're the one words of one who knows that the awful of the world, and he longs to find relief in the only place he can, in God. You see, the psalmist doesn't remain in the valley. This is what I love about the psalms. They're honest about our experience. They're honest about the realities of this world, but they don't remain there. They move out of it. They move through the valley. He goes through the barren land, through the place of weeping, and arrives at the place of worship because it is there that his longing for the awfulness to be undone is found. The sadness of the world is replaced with the song of joy. In verse 2, he ends, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You see, the reason why he is not overcome by sadness is because he is in the presence of God. And what is this presence like? Well, in verse 1, he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. It is lovely. It's lovely. Regardless of whatever emotions he's bringing, he sees the place of worship as lovely, as beautiful, but the locale isn't beautiful in of itself. It's beautiful, it is lovely, because God himself is lovely. David says in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to come into the presence of God and worship, and we are, we are not simply confronted by his power and his strength, right? That's how we often think of God. He's powerful, he is strong, he is majestic, he is very different than we are, but, but he is also beautiful. He is what C.S. Lewis called the fair beauty of the Lord. A beauty so enticing that the psalmist says in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. A doorkeeper. This wasn't a high and lofty position. This wasn't a position people aspired to, a doorkeeper. And yet what he is saying is that just to be near the place of worship for a moment, to stand at the door for a day is better to, than spending a thousand in the presence of wickedness. Or as Augustine put it, men long for thousands of days and wish to live here long. Let them despise these thousands of days. Let them long for one day 
which has neither rising nor setting one day, an everlasting day to which no yesterday yields, which no tomorrow presses. Let this one day be longed for by us. You see, God's majestic presence, his beauty, one day in his presence is greater than thousands without it. But what is so wonderful about that is that even though that is better, right? It is better to be in his presence for a moment than thousands apart from it. What is promised to us is something even more imaginable. That he doesn't confine us to looking through windows or standing at doorways, but what he invites us to do is dwell with him for all eternity. Verse 4, the psalmist says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise ever singing your praise, forever exalting you because we are in your presence. And friends, if we are in Christ, if we are trusting in him, if our hope is founded in Jesus, then the promise of dwelling with God and ever singing his praise, it is sure. I mean, Jesus told us when he went away in his ascension that he was going away to prepare a place for us, to prepare a place for us, a place that will inhabit when he returns and is the place that we will dwell with God in. When he will be our God and we will dwell with him as his people forever. See, as beautiful as the promise of one day being a doorkeeper in the presence of God is, there is an eternity that awaits us. An eternity when all the awful will be no more. When we will lay our heads down, not in the pessimism of the awful, but in perfect peace. Because we dwell with the Lord. You see, friends, that's why we can have hope. That's why despite our tears, despite the darkness, despite the valleys that we may go through, we can sing because of God's presence. But also because of God's protection. That's the other thing that the psalmist says. He points us to, look at verses 10 and 11. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is our sun and shield. He is a sun. Like, what a beautiful picture that is. What a beautiful image that the psalmist is giving us. Because in the midst of the valley, it feels like things are dark. In the midst of the sadness, it feels like there is a cloud that is always over us. But God is our sun. He shines his light into the darkness of this world, but also into the darkness of our hearts. And this light of light, we ex- this light of life, we experience this through his very word. Because it is in his word and in those moments of the cold and the dark that we experience his warmth and light. We hear words like, you feel alone, but I am always with you. You feel abandoned, but I will never forsake you. We hear words like you you feel like you have been rejected, but because of my son, you are my children. We find comfort in the fact that he is our son that shines into the dark, but he is also our shield. That's how the psalmist describes him. He is our shield, but notice that he also applies that word shield to his anointed, God's anointed. Look, In verse 9, he says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. The anointed. Now, the anointed in the Old Testament would have been a reference to the king. 
The king was God's anointed because the king was the protector over Israel. He was set apart to be the model of what Israel was to be, the model of faithfulness, and he was to be Israel's shield. This is what the king was supposed to be. The earthly manifestation of God's protecting of, of his shield. But we know that the kings didn't function that way, right? I mean, this was the ideal, this was the model, but just read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, read the prophets, and we don't find kings like this, do we? We find king after king, even in the line of David, not just the northern kingdom, but even in the southern, we find king after king failing and faltering. They're not the manifestation of God's protection. In fact, they show themselves to be weak. None fully protected the people, but one. But one, right? Because because the anointed one, the, the king over Israel was awaiting a greater king, a better king, right? There was one king who actually did protect and care for his people, Jesus. He is the anointed one who protects his people in ways that other kings could not. Because it is only Jesus who protects us from the judgment that we're deserving. And it is only Jesus who shields us from the wrath that should have been poured on us. And it is only Jesus who guards us by freeing us from the bonds of sin. And he does it by giving of himself. You see, friends, we may look at the awfulness of this world and wonder, where is our shield? Where is our protector? But to find the answer, we don't look to the world. To find that answer, we look to the cross. Because in the cross, we see Jesus shielding us with his body that was nailed to the tree and with his blood that was shed. And this is why we can sing with the psalmist, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. We can trust in God. In what he does that is good and right, we can trust in him because he gives us what we need, because he has given us his very self. This psalm is so wonderful. It's wonderful because it doesn't ignore the awful and the gray of the world, but it actually counteracts it with color and beauty. And it reminds me of this room in the St. Louis Art Museum. I imagine some of you have been in this room because some of you are from St. Louis or you've visited. The St. Louis Art Museum, there's this beautiful room of contemporary art and it features the the works of Gerhard Richter. Gerhard Richter was a post-World War II German artist and he had fled from East Germany after the war and so much, much of his work, many of his works, depict what he would have experienced. They are gray and dark and cold. And in this one room, it, it's a massive room, not, not as tall as this room, but but it's two or three stories up and he has on that wall, on this one wall, there is a work of Gerhard Richter called Gray Mirror. There are these three giant gray panels. And you can stand in front of them and, and they are reflective. And so you can see yourself. You can see your outline and you can see your, your face and you can see expressions. But because they're gray, all the color is muted. They feel cold and dark. You can see your outline, but but you don't look like yourself. And if you look too long at at yourself in these gray mirrors, it can be very unsettling. But on the other wall, 
You see, every time I would go into this room and I would take my children with me, my, my little girl at the time was like seven. She didn't really get the symbolism, but that's okay. I would take her and we had to look at Grey Mirror first. And then after feeling the unsettledness, we would turn and we would walk to the other wall. We would leave Grey Mirror in the background, then we would see we'd be confronted with my favorite work by Gerhard Richter. It's a painting called Betty. It's a picture of his daughter. And Betty is sitting there and her head is turned away from you so you can't see her face, but, but it's in full color. And there's the beauty of her blonde hair and the cream of the coat that she's wearing and the pop of the red flowers on the coat. And in the background, as she's turning her head away, she is looking at gray mirror. The contrast between Betty and the gray. The contrast between the dark and the color. The contrast between the beauty and the unsettled. It is stark. That there is color in the midst of the gray and there is beauty in the midst of the awful. And when you look at Betty, you can't help but feel comfort and hope. And friends, that's what the psalm leaves us with. It leaves us with comfort and hope that though we are pilgrims, pilgrims who at times will walk through valleys of tears, though we are pilgrims who will walk through dry and weary lands, there is hope because of the beauty of God's presence. And there is hope because of the strength of his protection. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in the midst of the brokenness of this world, in the midst of the awful, you meet your people. That you meet with your people and you show us that the awful is not forever, but that there is hope. Hope because you, Lord Jesus, have gone to the cross. Hope, Lord Jesus, because the tomb could not continue. Hope because even today, when we walk through the valley of Baca, through tears and through darkness, you reign and rule now and forevermore. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope, that you would turn our eyes towards you so that we would know your grace and mercy in our time of need. Be with these students, their teachers, the administration. Be with us all so that we would live as people of hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.